I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I have developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading Exodus chapters 16 through 18. This is the New King James Version of the podcast. The King James Version is also available. In today's reading, we encounter a couple of problems with Israel as they've left Egypt. And the first one is in Exodus chapter 16, verse 1. And they journeyed from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month, after they departed from the land of Egypt. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. Then Moses and Aaron said to all the children of Israel, At evening ye shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning ye shall see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your complaints against the Lord. But what are we that you complain against us? And Moses said, This shall be seen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and in the morning bread to the full. For the Lord hears your complaints which you make against him. And what are we? Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses spoke to Aaron, Say to all the congregation of the children of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your complaints. Now it came to pass, as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the children of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So it was that quails came up at evening and covered the camp, and in the morning the dew lay all around the camp. And when the layer of dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance as fine as frost on the ground. So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, This is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Let every man gather it according to each one's need, one omer for each person, according to the number of persons. Let every man take for those who are in his tent. Then the children of Israel did so and gathered some more, some less. So when they measured it by omers, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. Every man had gathered according to each one's need. And Moses said, Let no one leave any of it till morning. Notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses, but some of them left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. 
So they gathered it every morning, every man according to his need, and when the sun became hot, it melted. And so it was on the sixth day that they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one. And all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake today, and boil what you will boil, and lay up for yourselves all that remains to be kept until morning. So they laid it up till morning, as Moses commanded, and it did not stink, nor were there any worms in it. Then Moses said, Eat that today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. Now it happened that some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, for the Lord has given you the Sabbath, therefore he gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. Let every man remain in his place, let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day, and the house of Israel called its name Manna. And it was like white coriander seed, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Then Moses said, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Fill an omer with it to be kept for your generations, that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a pot and put an omer of manna in it, and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations." As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. And the children of Israel ate manna forty years, until they came to an inhabited land. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Now an omer is one-tenth of an ephah. The Hebrews have just witnessed a remarkable delivery from Egypt, accompanied by ten indisputable miracles and the plagues that God had brought upon the Egyptians, from which, by the way, the Hebrews were spared. They've just witnessed the miracle of a lifetime when they saw the waters of the Red Sea part, which enabled them to walk across on dry land. They've just witnessed the destruction of Pharaoh's mighty army, along with 600 chariots in that same Red Sea, as the Egyptians had been pursuing them. Is it possible that anyone could question the provisional hand of God after such a bountiful manifestation of miracles? Well, hang on to your hats. Yes, the Hebrews did question God's ability to provide. I know it doesn't seem possible at this point, but true nonetheless. It's just a little over a month out of Egypt, and look at verse 2. It says, Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Incredible! What's wrong with these people? They get a little bit hungry and look back with fondness at their existence in Egypt and they blame Moses for what they considered to be a life-threatening dilemma. Can you really trust the consensus of the masses for sound decision-making? We often hear people reflect back on the tough times in their lives, and they refer to those times as the good old days. But this, this is outrageous. These Hebrews had been abused slaves back in those so-called good old days. God's solution here is simple, at least it's simple to God, manna. The first time they see this manna is verse 15. The phrase in that verse, it is manna, which is the way the King James Version translates it, is coming from just one Hebrew word, and that word is mon, 
Literally, the word mon in Hebrew means, what is it? Now, the New King James Version does translate it that way. That was their first reaction to the bread-like substance left on the ground after the dew evaporated. It's interesting that this name sticks. For 40 years, they call it, what is it? That would have made a great Abbott and Costello routine back in the wilderness, you know, like the one who's on first. Hey, Mom, what's for breakfast? Mom replies, what is it? Junior replies, I don't know. You tell me. But wait, there's more to this story. Quail, quail for supper. Lots and lots of quail. God sent the quail. Now the people who come up with a natural solution for every miracle say that the quail landed on the first available spot after their long flight across the Red Sea. Well, whatever. They just happened to land right there where the Hebrews just gathered them up and cooked them for supper. Incidentally, there's another quail episode later on in Numbers chapter 11. You might be wondering why they didn't just eat meat from their own livestock when they were hungry. Well, they weren't permitted to do so except under special circumstances. Those circumstances are explained in Leviticus chapter 17. Nope, no steak or lamb chops. For right now, they'll have to make do with meals of manna and quail. It's interesting to note the keeping of the Sabbath day even before the giving of the law, which doesn't take place until Exodus chapter 20. The Sabbath apparently was sacred to their ancestors going back to creation, where Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3 says this, And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Exodus 16.23 regards the significance of the Sabbath without any explanation, even though this is the first time in the Bible that the word Sabbath occurs. Here's what it says. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake today, and boil what you will boil, and lay up for yourselves all that remains to be kept until morning. They couldn't gather an extra day's worth of manna on any day except Friday. If they did, it would become infested with worms if they tried to save it. But Fridays were different. On Friday, what you gathered would keep through Saturday. We see in Exodus chapter 16:30 the following. The people rested on the seventh day. And, by the way, when some initially went out Saturday morning to gather their daily allotment of manna, there was none. This manna is quite remarkable stuff. Moses commands Aaron to put some in a jar for a memorial, and canning is born. By the way, we see in verse 35 that manna remained part of the Hebrew diet for 40 years until they reached Canaan in Joshua chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. We're told in verse 34 that the jar eventually made its way into the testimony, that being the ark, and there it was preserved. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 4 acknowledges its presence there. However, the jar of manna disappeared somewhere between Moses and Solomon. Here's how we know that. We see in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 10, it says this, Nothing was in the ark except the two tablets which Moses put there at Horeb, when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they had come out of Egypt. And that same statement of fact, by the way, is found in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 9. And then we have an issue of thirst in chapter 17, verse 1. 
Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin according to the commandment of the Lord and camped in Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us, and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people, and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Well, the Hebrews have been traveling, and there in the wilderness they begin to contend with Moses. Look at verse 3. It says, And the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, What is it you've brought us out of Egypt, to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? I guess we better get used to these whining Hebrews. I don't think they're going to ever stop. Now notice, they don't just discover water. God makes a show, a miracle, if you please, right before their eyes for the provision of water. Moses strikes the rock with his rod and water gushes forth. This place gets a double name. It's called Masa and Meribah. Masa means testing and Meribah means quarreling. How appropriate. The water from the rock miracle takes place again with the descendants of these people 39 years later over in Numbers chapter 20. However, on that occasion, Moses is told by God to simply speak to the rock, not strike it with his rod. His disobedience on that occasion results in God's refusal to allow Moses to be the one to lead the Hebrews into Canaan. By the way, this incident here takes place at Horeb. That's another name for the mountain range of Sinai. If that name looks familiar, it's because that's where Moses was keeping his flock of sheep for his father-in-law when he talked to God in the burning bush back in Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. You'll recall that on that occasion in Exodus chapter 3, verse 12, God said to Moses, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Well, here they are, just as God had said. As a matter of fact, Moses' father-in-law knows exactly where to find Moses and the Hebrews, down in Exodus chapter 18, which we'll see in a few moments. That's when he brings Moses' family over to meet him. It was never an option for Israel to head straight up out of Egypt into Canaan. Now in chapter 17, beginning with verse 8, we have the real test, which is war. Verse 8, Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy so that they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it, and Aaron and Hur supported his hands. 
one on one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book, and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now in that big old wilderness, the Amalekites decide that Israel is infringing on their territorial rights. So they go against the Hebrews in battle. Amalek, by the way, was Esau's grandson, we see in Genesis chapter 36, verse 12. And the tribe of Amalek consisted of his descendants. Moses puts Joshua, this is Joshua's first mention, puts Joshua in charge of the fighting men while Moses just stands up above the battle, holding his rod up in the air. As long as he holds the rod up, Israel prevails in battle, but begins losing when he puts his arms down to rest. Notice verse 12. But Moses' hands became heavy, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. It's a great illustration. I can't count the number of sermons I've heard in my lifetime on this passage of Scripture. Everybody needs an Aaron and a Hur. And the outcome? Well, need you ask? Now, you might wonder why it was necessary for Moses to hold his hands up for Israel to prevail in battle. Well, it's simple, really. It was a visible validation of Moses' leadership over the Hebrews. It was obviously done for the benefit of the Hebrews themselves. Add that to the long string of miracles God performed through Moses before Israel to prove them God's ability to provide. There's some sobering words from God regarding the Amalekites in verse 14. Here's what it says. I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Now, verse 16 adds this, The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Israel, as a matter of fact, did war with these Amalekites over the years until Saul destroys them in 1 Samuel chapter 15. David had a brief episode with a remnant of the Amalekites in 1 Samuel chapter 30, but then they disappeared just as God had said. Hey, now, I'm not superstitious, because, you know, it's bad luck to be superstitious. But let me just say, it's best for a nation not to become Israel's enemy. God made a covenant with Abraham, which was passed down through Isaac, Jacob, and his descendants, Israel. One of the provisions of that covenant is found in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, and here's what that says. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. I'm completely convinced that those nations which abuse Israel do so at their own peril. There's no indication in Scripture that the promise of Genesis chapter 12, verse 3 has an expiration date. And that's why we see, to the surprise of many Jews, the overwhelming support of Israel by fundamental Christians today. We may not like everything that Israel does, but who dares get at odds with a nation that's working under a God guarantee? I should mention, however, that Jewish tradition attributes the ordeal of the Jews in the book of Esther to a descendant of the Amalekites, Haman. In Esther chapter 3, verse 1, he's introduced as Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. Jewish tradition believes that the Agagite there means that Haman was a descendant of King Agog of 1 Samuel chapter 15. 
You recall that Saul destroyed the Amalekites there, but kept King Agog alive. When Samuel shows up, he expresses God's great disappointment with Saul at not complying with God's command. Samuel then slew King Agog himself. In reality, we're not sure that Agagite means a descendant of King Agog in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Nonetheless, when Jews celebrate the festival that arose out of the book of Esther, which is Purim, they always read the story here in Exodus chapter 17 as part of their celebration. They're convinced that Haman was one of these Amalekite descendants. In later Jewish tradition, Amalek became the symbol for anti-Semitism in general. And then in chapter 18, Moses' father-in-law shows up. Verse 1, And Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back, with her two sons, of whom the name of one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. And the name of the other was Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help, and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. Now he had said to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down and kissed him, and they asked each other about their well-being, and they went into the tent. And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them on the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. Then Jethro rejoiced for all the good which the Lord had done for Israel, whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods, for in the very thing in which they behaved proudly he was above them. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and other sacrifices to offer to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. And so it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. So when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, "'What is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone?' And all the people stand before you from morning until evening. And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a difficulty, they come to me, and I judge between one and another, and I make known the statutes of God and his laws. So Moses' father-in-law said to him, The thing that you do is not good. Both you and these people who are with you will utterly wear yourselves out. This thing is too much for you, and you are not able to perform it by yourself. Listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel, and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people, so that you may bring the difficulties to God. And you shall teach them the statutes and the law, and show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. 
Then it will be that every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they themselves shall judge, so it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure, and all this people will also go to their place in peace. So Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. And Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. So they judged the people at all times, the hard cases they brought to Moses, but they judged every small case themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went his way to his own land. Now, whoever said the Hebrews were lost? Jethro, also sometimes called Raul, He's Moses' father-in-law, and he knew right where to find Moses right there on the Sinai Peninsula. As a matter of fact, we see in this passage that Moses' wife and two sons had gone home to dad until Moses could get everything on track. So here comes Jethro with Moses' family in tow, right back to the spot where Moses once kept Jethro's sheep, to the same spot where Moses saw that burning bush back in Exodus chapter 3, verse 1, the spot where he talked with God. Incidentally, Jethro's declaration in verse 11 seems to demonstrate that he was still a polytheist, believing in many gods when Jethro says the following, Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods, for in the very thing in which they behave proudly, he was above them. On this visit, Jethro spends the day with Moses, watching him judge between disputes among the Hebrews all day long. Jethro puts his management decree to work here, He suggests a new organizational structure to Moses that proves to significantly reduce the workload on Moses. Now, for you organizational gurus, he goes from a flat organizational structure to a tall organizational structure. Additional details regarding this reorganization are found in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 9 through 18. That's when Moses recalls it all back 40 years later. And after a short visit, Jethro goes home to Midian. Now again, who says the Hebrews were lost? They weren't lost. They were following the pillar, that cloud by day and fire by night, the pillar that God had given them for direction. And they had gone back to Horeb to the exact place where God talked to Moses from the burning bush. God's in the process here of building a strong Hebrew nation. They'll get to Canaan when God's ready for them to get to Canaan. Now here's a lesson for believers. Use the time that God gives you to prepare wisely. Don't get impatient with God's training period. When you're ready, God will tell you you're ready. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Fayette Bible Church, Paul Walton. 